Bunzai! To baby trees. Bunzai. Bunzai! Bunzai. It's almost like once you start doing it, I you almost have to. Like it, it, yeah. it's. He takes his hand and grabs his hat on top of his head while he's looking at it. The Black Pondo Podcast. You can ask me anything. I'll, I'll talk about whatever. <laughs> nice. Okay. Uh, today, you know, I was hoping that we could uh, talk a little bit about you, get some of your background, uh, talk about what you're up to today, uh, maybe kind of like your leap to becoming a bonsai professional. I mm. uh, was hoping to talk about bonsai and SoCal a bit, uh, oaks for bonsai, grafting conifers. I know that we share some of the same opinions and philosophies there. Uh, and then, you know, if we go down any other rabbit hole, I'm totally good with that. Okay. Uh, but yeah. just kind of to kick us off, um, would you give me <laughs> an overview on kind of like how you got into bonsai and, and who you've studied with? Um, sure. Yeah. I mean, my, my interest in bonsai kind of began right when I was getting out of a high school. Um, I have kind of this, you know, offshoot this, uh, tangential story. Um, but in high school I had this, uh, part-time job, uh, working for this, uh, cutlery dealer and they would basically sell, you know, custom knives or kitchen knives from various sources and makers. And I would just kind of handle their advertising and some of their sales, uh, stuff like consignment. Um, and when I was doing that job, I was really interested in, in seeing a lot of these custom knife makers use these um, uh, wooden blanks, you know, for their knife handles that they would carve or mill out uh, the handle out of. And typically they were made from these highly figured uh, pieces of wood, usually made from burls or something with some kind of curly wave in it or some some interesting grain line. And, and you know, my concept of just wood was, you know, something from Home Depot and, you know, just some typical construction wood. Uh, so when I saw that, I was very curious as to where it came from and what kind of tree and what part of a tree, right? Uh, I didn't know what burls even were. Um, so this kind of spun off to this kind of side interest where I would look at trees, uh, not for bonsai, um, but to seek out pieces of figured wood, right? I would look up into a tree and I'm like, oh, there's a burl there, or this section of the wood is curly. Um, these would be interesting pieces to use for wood working. Um, so I've kind of gained this habit, um, not directly related, but just the habit of studying trees. Um, kind of from then, and, and this is the kind of story I tell people of how I got interested in bonsai, um, but I was uh, surf fishing uh, with my dad. Um, this is after I graduated high school. And, you know, we liked to look for uh, stones on the beach, not sui uh, seki per se, right? It's just just anything we liked, um, so nothing refined. Um, but I remember I found something that was kind of uh, reminiscent of a cliff, um, right? Just some large, uh, bulky rock kind of boulder and why I, I took it home and I had this idea that if we were able to put a tree on it right it would very uh, realistically convey this image of some kind of coastal tree on a cliff and and portray that sense of scale um, so kind of that very day I looked up uh, how do you put a tree on a rock right and and one of the top results on Google was was bonsai and and immediately when I saw that right I just knew this this was it and I was hooked um, 
still kind of going through college, right? It was just this big rabbit hole of a hobby and a passion. And I just read and learn, you know, anything I could about bonsai and just kind of mass consumption of anything on the internet. Um, and it got to the point where I was just entertaining this idea in my head of, of people uh, can do this professionally, right? Especially in Southern California, we have a lot of bonsai practitioners and some professionals and and kind of there's it's a it's another story in itself but kind of through that pursuit of that interest and and many people who helped kind of uh, refer and recommend me uh, eventually led me to pursuing an apprenticeship uh, where I studied at a uh, Fujikawa Kokoen uh, in Osaka Japan very interesting how you initially got into bonsai uh Personally, like I'm, I'm very into different types of wood as well. Uh, really nice wood. Mm-hmm. Always enjoyed burl and flame maple. Uh, I kind of learned about that initially through guitars, like electric guitars and acoustic guitars. Um, but uh, I definitely am interested now more so in high quality wood with bonsai stands. <laughs> so it's cool that that kind of translated yeah. over for you. Uh, and um, then, yeah. Are you still into uh, suiseki and stones as well? Uh, yes. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I to be honest, you know, my knowledge in, in suiseki is very limited. Kind of, um, this is kind of funny. When I was in Japan and, and I asked my senpais, like, how do you know if this suiseki is good or not? And he told me it's good if you like it, right? <laughs> and that's kind of my extended knowledge of suiseki. Um, so I'll find some kind of interesting lines or some kind of shape that for whatever arbitrary reason kind of speaks for me. Um, so I do definitely appreciate it, but I can't really claim to be knowledgeable in that that aspect. I'm not very knowledgeable either, but I actually really love that quote. It's good if you like it. I think that applies to bonsai <laughs> as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's the yeah. most important thing. Uh-huh. And then I was curious, so in college, did you have bonsai trees? Because I know I had one in yeah. col- at, when I went to UCSB, <laughs> and I'm pretty sure one of my housemates watered it with their beer at a party, <laughs> and it died. So it, it's hard to keep, uh, keep bonsai in college, I feel yeah, like, for I, most people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for any student or young working an adult, especially if you're traveling, it's, it's pretty – I mean, bonsai likes – stability right they need some daily care and you need to kind of pay attention to how it's responding in the season um, i mean over college I, I did have trees but basically i just left them at home um, and sometimes my parents helped me water them or i come back on the weekend here and there and check on them i remember i used a um, automatic uh, irrigation system at one point and i got one of those um, wi-fi kind of um, uh, timers so I would look on my phone, kind of the weather in, in the area where my parents were li- uh, living. And, and if it seemed like the trees needed water, then I can just tap for my phone and, and they would get watered. Um, definitely hard to develop and kind of maintain trees, though, especially if you're gone most of the time. Just doesn't really translate well for bonsai practice. Very cool. Uh, so... Uh, and you don't have to dive super far into it, but was just curious about your time at uh, Fujikawa Koka N. So you were there for about two years. Is that correct? Yeah. So it was the kind of 
the month right after I graduated college, uh, I flew over there and kind of started my apprenticeship and just came right back at um, the, the start of COVID. Um, when when I started at Kokain, there was, well, well, technically I was just the one apprentice there. Um, there's my senpai, uh, Naoki Maoko-san, um, really talented and nice guy. Um, he was there as well. Um, he, he had been there for well over 10 years. So he, you know, he was kind of, I mean, he, he was, did a lot uh, for my boss. Um, so in, initially when I started, um, there's a little bit of overlap uh, where he was my senpai and he kind of helped me out. Um, I, there is some kind of brief periods where it was just me. Um, essentially, uh, I think Malka-san is, well, he, he wanted to leave, but I mean, you can't, really just especially he's like Japanese right and he can't just be like well I'm out of here screw you kind of thing he has to make sure the nursery is in good standing there's apprentices to take over the work um so kind of I was there for a bit and then later um you know Kaya right he it was kind of funny um I had initially uh, sent Kaya my trees when he was at Boone's um, to board them for me because they kind of offered to, to hold it. And then kind of six months later, he like messaged me and he's like, oh, I want to come to Japan also. And and right. So he came later. And then we got another guy uh, from Canada, uh, Michael Matig, a really nice guy and, and pretty skilled as well. Um, so, I mean, it was in, in kind of hindsight, really, I was not there that long. I mean, the two years go by really fast. Um, but overall, I would say it was, um, of course, a hard experience, but uh, was able to learn quite a lot in a short time, um, participate at Taikon 10, Kokufu, um, essentially just worked on and, and churned out a lot of trees, um, kind of for Kokuen's business model, where they we are essentially evaluating what our good trees in the sense of the work they may entail and and how you can write leverage your skills and say within ideally write a one year time span or less and, and to sell it and flip it. Um, so for kind of Kokan's business model, right, the apprentices are getting tons of trees just churn through the nursery, you get to work on a lot of stuff, a lot of wiring. Um, and that was kind of like a big focus during the apprenticeship. Very cool. I've uh, absolutely enjoyed following all your work while you were at Fujikawa Kokan. And I love following, you know, Kaya's work on Instagram and Bjorn's videos that he's posted. Mm -hmm. uh, looks like uh, it, they have some really incredible material over there. And that's got to be just an awesome experience that you had uh, for two years. Oh, yeah, yeah. Since you've been back, uh, <laughs> I noticed you're kind of all over California, uh -huh. uh, but definitely up at uh, Peter T's house up in Auburn, California, which is quite a ways from you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, can you tell me a little bit about you and Peter's relationship? Um, sure. Yeah. So I, I, the first time I met Peter was actually at the Kokufu. So I was there and I can't remember which Kokufu number it is, but it was in uh, 2019. Um, I was out there right on the vendor's table, it was snowing and cold and just kind of like, right, just doing apprentice duties. And, and you know, of course, as a hobbyist, right, I, I followed uh, Peter's blog, right. You know, for most bonsai enthusiasts, right. That was, pro you know, arguably maybe the best bonsai blog in terms of the quality and, and content of the information. Um, so really, you know, kind of top-notch stuff for any kind of hobbyist trying to 
you know, just learn some techniques or concepts in bonsai. Um, so I was basically knew of Peter before and kind of respected his approach and kind of work style. Um, so I, I met him at Coca Food, kind of introduced myself very briefly. Um, but it was a really kind of short interaction, um, right? I'm just there working and he was kind of showing some people around, uh, I think doing some, some kind of tour. Um, so maybe it was like a 10 minute conversation. Um, and when I came back from Japan, right? So this is the, the start of 2020, kind of around when uh, COVID was getting started. You know, I, I knew just from, you know, like from my experience apprenticing, like the more you understand, like in, in, in depth and in bonsai, the more you realize like how much you don't know that, that the, the, the skill ceiling and the depth of knowledge is almost to where you cannot know everything. Um, but it's just kind of overwhelming. And, and for me, especially in, as an aspiring professional, right, I was always seeking to, to be the best I possibly can, right, really learn the techniques and my skill set. And I knew that two years out of Japan, right, it was not enough. Um, so I, 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 I think I emailed Peter and I told him, I mean, I told him exactly that. I said, you know, we talked briefly. I was there for two years, but I still in some kind of effect want to continue my study. And, and initially I, I just asked him, you know, can I just join one of your workshops or something? And and Peter was very uh, gracious and nice to me. And, and he gave me kind of this, uh, I guess, professional courtesy where he told me, it's like, well, you know, you're not just some whatever hobbyist or, or customer. You, you're trying to like do this professionally. He's like, just come up here, you know, we can chat and, and just help me on some stuff. And, and then I basically kind of just learn from him and, and do, uh, do whatever. Um, so I think from the start of COVID for, the past, I guess, well, I guess almost like three years now from the start of COVID. That's crazy. Um, and I would go to Peter's place uh, once, one weekend, about one weekend a month, um, right? A crazy drive from LA, right? And I would just keep on going back and forth. Um, so, and, and, and for me, that was, you know, re really great just to kind of see Peter's work on um, his philosophy on his trees and his approach. And, and essentially I feel I can fill in some gaps in my knowledge and kind of improve my skills continuously. And that, that was an important aspect for me. Um, so I, I uh, appreciate Peter a lot for doing that. That's fantastic. And I, I really respect uh, that you are doing that. I, I feel like any professional within any industry, I mean, we should always, well, they should always be learning. You know, you can never master everything. Mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. And so uh, I, I really like that you are continuing your education. And I also think that uh, Peter is really good about that. Like I've definitely heard him say, hey, you know, I uh, picked up this new technique and he's always trying to improve his skills, I know. And so uh, I'm a big fan of Peter's work, most definitely. Um, what is it about Peter's work for you specifically that you really like? Um, I mean, my impression initially was was from his blog, um, but but there is kind of a few aspects that kind of spoke to me. I mean, one, it was 
technically very clean. Um, and my kind of personal philosophy and approach to bonsai is that uh, bonsai is not a pure art form, right? It's not as we may think a sculpture or painting where we can kind of make in one iteration. It is for forever changing um, no matter what, right? And that's just the reality of a living tree. So if we try to create bonsai, um, bonsai in some a pure pursuit of aesthetic, right? Just some kind of art, um, but abandon that aspect of the craft and the sustainability of the tree. It's just, it's just my opinion, but I think you end up with a, a diluted kind of half-assed version of bonsai. Um, so I, I first kind of really respected that, you know, his technique in application was extremely clean. Um, and he's always kind of explaining, you know, what he does and, and this concept of kind of sustainability, right? And, and where your bonsai is just not a one-time thing, right? How do you build upon the tree? How do you improve the tree? So it gets better and better and better. Um, and that was something that, that kind of really, you know, resonated with my mindset and approach to bonsai. And, and I knew that, you know, if I could kind of pick up some of Peter's approach and his skill, it would kind of serve me well and kind of well-rounding uh, my skills in that aspect. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I love his approach. I mean, I, th I think he's good at everything too, which is part of the, the reason I love to learn from him, uh, both mm -hmm. deciduous and conifer. He's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Does some broadleaf evergreen stuff as well. Uh, and clean. I feel like that's a, that's a great way to describe his work. Oh yeah. Yeah. Perfect. So what, uh, what kind of work are you doing now as a professional? Uh, and, uh, what type of work are you, are you open to? <laughs> I know um, you're traveling all over yeah. California. Yeah. So, so since I, I committed to bonsai full time, right. Cause, um, the past a few years is kind of like my side hustle while doing a, a full-time job kind of more related in my college background. Um, but from, uh, 2022 in July, I, I quit my job and just started doing only bonsai work. Um, a lot of traveling, uh, mainly in California. So I'll have, um, uh, workshops, um, and study groups, uh, study groups I have mainly right now, just in Southern California. Uh, the way I kind of differentiate, uh, study groups from workshops, Workshops are kind of more uh, one-off where maybe you're with a new group or a larger club. Um, study groups, there's a sense of uh, consistency in terms of you have the same pool of members and you progress the trees they work on, which for me is much a much kind of better approach than a one-off work because most bonsai work is not realized in some a single session. Um, so doing a bit of that. I would say I'm doing mostly private work, um, right? So just one-on-one -on -one, um, with people's collections in Southern California, and I'm traveling a bit um, throughout uh, Fresno and a little bit on the coast. Um, so pretty much in any and everything um, for work right now. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll sell trees, do consignment, and just travel where anybody wants me. Um, so pretty much um, open to any kind of work requests. Um, people can just contact me from social media or whatever. Solid, solid. I like it. Yeah, I've been following you on Instagram. Uh, I love the work that you've been doing at the Clark Collection. Oh, yeah. And, and yeah. Some of the, uh, I, I've seen a few uh, California junipers that you've worked on recently that I was very impressed with. I saw you and Kaya going back and forth on one of them. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. 
work looked solid. Uh, and then I also saw, were you just down in San Diego doing a lecture on uh, Deciduous? Uh, yeah, so um, uh, San Diego's a, a big, what's well, the biggest club in Southern California. It's just that one club kind of serving all of uh, San Diego County, um, but they have great people leading the club, a lot of layers in the membership, so kind of beginner, intermediate teachers and, and different resources they offer. So I, they are what I would describe as a healthy bonsai club. So they have 400 members, right, kind of wow. uh, pretty stable, um, so they can pull a lot of people. Um, yeah, recently I did, um, it was kind of a half presentation, half demo. Um, and, 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 and you mentioned, or I, I wrote, um, basically a blog post recently where, you know, I talk not so much on the techniques of building deciduous trees because it will be kind of very species specific, uh, stage of development, that kind of thing. Um, but more just on the principles of building deciduous bonsai. Um, which is something I feel is not really talked about that much, at least in the U.S. I mean, we have a lot of uh, deciduous hobbyists and professionals, I mean, many of which who do very good work. Um, but a lot of times people are so kind of focused and narrowed in on, you know, I have this fancy technique or I do this to my tree and or maybe it's just some kind of fancy wiring of a deciduous tree, which, you know, I don't quite agree with entirely. Um, but I think it's for any concept in bonsai, you just need to understand, you know, why are you doing it? Uh, what are the effects of the work and kind of that long-term progression? Um, so essentially I gave them this, uh, presentation where I talked about, uh, principles of building deciduous trees, how you develop branches and kind of compare the penjing and bonsai model, uh, which for me, I feel, you know, the philosophy and approach is a little different, but the core of the technique is the same. And, and we can kind of get into that, um, later if we can. Yeah, that would be fantastic. Um, in fact, <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, let's come back to that. Let's oh, come okay. back to that. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. But I definitely want to talk about your article a little bit more because I was very impressed with that article. Uh, I read it and uh, I thought you had a, real, a lot of really cool points on it. I love the graph that you covered or the uh, <clears throat> chart that you entered there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Before we get into that, though, uh, one question I had is, uh, is there any type of work that you feel like maybe you specialize in? Or maybe another way of asking the question mm -hmm. is, is there any type of work that you that you don't really do? bonsai wise yeah yeah because i don't know if i have a a specialty per se i mean i i'm trying in a sense to to do everything so so right i mean i i try to do deciduous work as best i can and then same with conifers wiring anything um so i don't know if i have a specialty per se i i try my best right to kind of do the full range of everything that's out there um in terms of work I don't do. Um, I don't know if there's anything like specific that comes to mind because I will basically try to do every kind of work um, I can get. Um, I would say I don't necessarily work on, I mean, I work on Yamadori sometimes. 
um, but I don't have a huge amount of kind of raw material to develop. In, in part, it's just I'm not collecting too much, and the raw material is just out of my uh, affordability right now. Um, but kind of outside of that, I, I pretty much will just work on any and everything, which which was also a big part of why I kind of try to further my education, you know, studying a bit with Peter. Um, we have another uh, uh, local professional in Southern California. He also studied in Japan, uh, John Wong. And and why well, I've kind of uh, been in contact with him since before I went to Japan and kind of here and there will pick his brain or do some work for him. Um, so kind of best as I can over the years, I try to fill in any kind of gaps I feel is missing. That's great. That's great. Awesome. <clears throat> Another question I had for you was, is there anything specifically with bonsai that you are really looking to accomplish? Maybe long-term, maybe short-term, any goals that you have specifically? Um, yeah, a big kind of uh, project for me right now, and, and this is just because I'm, I'm based in Southern California, is really kind of like upping the bonsai game here and kind of the understanding of bonsai. I mean, in technically in the U.S., I think bonsai started in Southern California. It was that very early waves of uh, uh, Japanese immigrants. Um, those early clubs were kind of exclude. I mean, of course, I wasn't alive then. This is what people tell me, but it's pretty much Japanese only, right? They didn't let anybody else in. Um, so it's very kind of uh, exclusive. Um, so in a sense, they're just serving their own community, and it doesn't have that much of a relation to the the then kind of broader growth of bonsai in the U.S. Um, but we have a very old um, bonsai history in Southern California. And, and the thing that, and I think other professionals here feel maybe a little similar, was despite having this significant time advantage of the practice of bonsai here, um, I kind of hate to say it, but the, the skills and kind of the trees here have not progressed that much over the years. Um, so for me, both as you know, for me to work and survive here as a professional, um, but also to try to grow the community. Um, I really kind of would like to see the the level of bonsai um, rise here, uh, just see some better trees show up. And, and it's not that, you know, everybody needs to spend a ton of money on bonsai and, and we have this kind of elitist, you know, outlook on trees. Um, really, anybody can can work on bonsai and my kind of core philosophy is just teaching bonsai as a process i mean if you're so dialed in on this kind of end result and your trees have to look good on all the time um, i mean you're not going to have a good time in bonsai because just sometimes it's those results just take a long time but even from like mediocre material I mean, if you enjoy the process and you're in for the long game, then, I mean, the trees will get better and better. Um, so kind of hoping to, you know, grow my presence here, but also involve myself in this community and just see this um, level of bonsai rise in the area. That's fantastic. I feel like if, if anywhere needs it, uh, Southern California Definitely could use uh, leaders and bonsai professionals. And uh, I know that John Naka and his uh, kind of crew was mm -hmm. very big and they did a, a great job uh, back in the day. But it seems like uh, it's just ripe for a new generation to take over. And I think that's where you come in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, bonsai in SoCal specifically. Mm -hmm. So I'm in, uh, I was just thinking the other day, I've 
<laughs> in my life, I've only actually lived in two bordering counties. Yeah. E- even though I've traveled a lot throughout California, but I've only lived in San Luis Obispo and Santa Barbara counties. Um, <clears throat> and <laughs> I've only grown bonsai in San Luis Obispo and Santa Barbara counties. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's our, our climate is somewhat like SoCal. I mean, yeah, th- there's not, definitely not too dissimilar. Yeah. 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 I think we are, uh, our temperature doesn't maybe fluctuate quite as much, like probably gets hotter in the summertime. Mm-hmm. However, there's lots of, you know, microclimates and different yeah. climates within Southern California, right? Uh-huh. That's right. So uh, that just makes me very curious about bonsai in Southern California. And I'm always curious about uh, what's working well there because I can model after that and use those things. Uh, so I guess first off, would would you maybe start off by just explaining what types of trees tend to grow well in Southern California from from your experience? Um, yeah, I mean we have, I mean it, it's it's officially right a, a Mediterranean climate, um, but there's a lot of microclimates, right? And it depends on your proximity to the ocean. So you could kind of be right on the coast and have that um, consistent marine layer in the summer, very mild conditions year round. So your kind of range of temperature from the absolute low to the high throughout the year is is not too far apart. Um, I mean, you go a little bit inland and you don't get affected about by that coast as much, especially you start heading towards the valleys. Um, it'll get very hot in the summer, um, maybe a touch cooler in the winter. Um, but on a typical winter, right, we don't see below 45 degrees. Um, and that will kind of vary, of course, where you're located as well in terms of elevation and how deep you are in the valley. Um, and we have some kind of uh, mountain foothill communities as well. Um, not, not necessarily so high in elevation, maybe like a thousand feet. Um, and of course that gets, you know, similar climate to the valleys, just a touch colder in the winter. Um, so in, in some sense, you know, we can grow a lot of trees here. I mean, anything short of trees that need a good hard freeze, like a cold dormancy, um, will grow in Southern California. The main issue that I have come across and for my study groups is uh, water quality, Um, especially if you like uh, deciduous trees, um, water quality is is a deal breaker, right? Um, If your kind of dissolved salts is very high, water is very alkaline, high pH, I mean like the maples and stuff, they just have a hard time. They look like crappy around and, and they're just very susceptible to disease getting weak and just dying um so if if you like deciduous and you live in southern california um either you live in a region that has a little bit better water quality or has maybe some uh, local groundwater source um or you do uh ro right um so so that's why usually we see a lot of junipers in southern california because for most people, junipers are very hardy. They tolerate um, a wider range of water qualities, um, kind of more forgiving. Um, so we have a lot of people who kind of focus more on that coniferous aspect. Um, junipers and black pine seem to do pretty well here. Um, deciduous is hit or miss, right? It depends where you live and your kind of climate and water quality. Uh, would you say uh, do most people are they not able to grow Japanese maples down in Southern California for the most part? Yeah. I mean, I'd say the most part. Yeah. Like if you have, if you pull like 10 hobbyists from some random club, you know, maybe like 
three of them. <laughs> I mean, that's like totally arbitrary. Um, but just kind of from what I've seen from my own groups, um, it's definitely a, a smaller percentage that can do kind of um, uh, maples or kind of similar deciduous varieties. Um, just because the local climate and the water is just too unforgiving where the trees are just not hardy. And what about a uh, hornbeam and Chinese quince? Um, they seem more hardy than Japanese maples. Um, quince, I would say any of like these, um, kind of like when I look at the leaves and they're, they're like thicker, uh, more waxy. So kind of like a lot of broadleaf evergreens. Quince is a deciduous, right? But the leaves are much more robust, um, compared to a maple. They seem for whatever reason, more tolerant of kind of a high, uh, TDS level, dissolved salt level in the water. Um, so I would say those seem to be better than uh, maples, um, but still are kind of like subject to the same problems uh, maples have. Um, I mean, where I'm located right now, and I have, you know, a pretty wide range of deciduous trees, um, in part, uh, the area of LA County I'm in, the water quality is not that bad, actually. Um, but I kind of just made the conversion a few years ago and i just use um ro water reverse osmosis uh, for most of my trees and just because the ease of care and the health was just so much better that i just i can't can't go back um yeah 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 so uh, i noticed uh that a lot of uh southern california bonsai nurseries mm -hmm. When I look at just even the pots, for example, there's always yeah. like a white residue <laughs> yeah. on them, unfortunately. Yeah. And I, yeah. I got that for a long time uh -huh. as well. And it, that can't be <laughs> great for your trees. Uh, I don't know. I've heard that it, it actually coats the root, which I, I'm not sure if that is actually what is happening or not, but it can't be yeah, good for I mean, your trees. Yeah. I mean, I mean that part, I'm, I'm not too sure. Um, I mean, essentially the, the common issues i mean we see with water i mean there's there's two things right the the tds the total dissolved salts and then your ph um, if your salt level is very high i mean the the way i see it because um i mean I'm, i might be wrong on this i'm not totally sure um, but right water is just right diffusing through the roots it's just kind of this permeable membrane and if your salt level is very high the mobility of the water in the plant is just not as efficient. Um, not only that is that you have essentially all these different competing nutrients that are being taken up by the roots. Um, some maybe the plant needs, some it doesn't. Um, but if you have like the wrong balance and ratio, right, you can get stunted growth, maybe some kind of like phytotoxicity. Um, the reason why people say um, generally, right, that low pH is better than, say, like high pH alkaline water is that pH is determining the solubility of all the kind of salts and elements in your water, right? So at a high pH range, and this is kind of what we commonly see, uh, magnesium, calcium, right, is very abundant and, and present in the water, um, but we have very low levels of, say, um, iron and zinc. Um, that's why if you go to any commercial nursery and you buy a soil acidifier, 
it'll be some kind of iron uh, blend micronutrient or something basically just to compensate for that range of um, essentially uh, nutrients in the water which is not very accessible for the plant um, but trees kind of have their their sweet spot and the range they like um, of course in the ground uh, plants are much more hardy right the roots kind of have leeway to seek out the resources they need um, but once you confine things in a pot and you're your your TDS levels really high. I mean, the trees just suffer. They just don't like it at all. Totally. So you uh, currently are using an RO system to yeah. uh, to basically filter and clean your water. Mm -hmm. uh, what's your setup look like? Um, yeah. So I I bought essentially um, right. So like the RL system. It's it's essentially it's using. Uh, uh, water pressure it's kind of the brute force method of cleaning water so you'll use like your city water pressure it kind of forces water through this membrane right and you get this clean water on the other end and then there's a second line of water that kind of back flushes itself it cleans the membrane so it kind of self replenishes right um, so I have my RO unit and there's uh, two lines uh, a waste line which all the salts are going into and I actually redirect that into the landscape uh, things in the ground will tolerate in a very high TDS no problem and my clean water right I fill into this it's just a trash can right a 55 gallon trash can um, when you run water through RO system, it's essentially, I mean, there's a little bit of dissolved salts in there, but it's basically just water, right? For, for the most part, um, which that on its own is, is not necessarily good. I mean, your trees still need, you know, some small trace amounts of different micronutrients. If you gave them just pure, say like pure rainwater the whole year, distilled water, RO water where it has nothing in it. I mean, your tree can suffer for some kind of micronutrient deficiencies over the year. Um, so in that kind of uh, trash can, I, I will put in um, either I, I buy like some kind of CalMag uh, micronutrient mix um, or I'll just use a liquid fertilizer. Um, and I get, um, they sell this um, anywhere, right? Amazon, Home Depot, Walmart. It's these electronic meters. Um, and you put it in your water. It will tell you your TDS, your total dissolved salts. Uh, when you stick that in your clean water, right, it should be pretty low, say anywhere from like 5 to 30, um, the parts per million or the TDS of um, stuff in your water. And then I just add in the micronutrients and the fertilizer and bring that number about 100 to 150 during the growing season. Um, and it's essentially just ensuring the trees um, are getting this very small baseline amount of nutrients. Um, seems to grow pretty healthy uh, with that configuration. So I've kind of stuck with that since. Very nice. Yeah, I actually use an RO system as well. I have a, one called a Stealth 300 gallon per, uh, what is it? per day unit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And mine goes into just a, a brute trash can as well. Mm -hmm. I have a float pump on mine, so yeah. it, it shuts the system off. Oh, yeah. So I, I, I forgot to mention um, that that's another thing because I've, I've had that happen before where I turn my water and right, I forgot to shut it off. It's really bad ah. <laughs> um, in California. Um, but yeah. I mean, for what I do, I have an inline timer. Uh, my RL system, it's a 1,000 GPD a gallon per day rated system, 
which equates at my kind of city water pressure. I can get about 50 gallons in 80 minutes, um, hour, 20 minutes. Um, so I just got an inline physical timer where I just crank it to 80 minutes and it shuts off when it's full. Um, yeah. 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 Great. That's great. And then do you use some type of submersible pump attached to a hose? Is that how you're watering? Yeah, that's right. Um, and then I have a Sweet. pump in the trash can and it links up to the water hose. I, I flip the pump on and then I can basically run my, my dosed RO water into my water hose. That's great. That's great. Yeah. I, I really think that, uh, my trees look a lot healthier mm -hmm. after switching to RO water. Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm really happy with it and I'm going <laughs> to mm -hmm. continue to do it. Yeah. Uh, I, I only am watering a portion of my trees with RO water though, just because I feel kind of bad <laughs> right. about all yeah. the loose water, yeah. you know? So I have like my, my actual bonsai trees in, in uh, in bonsai containers and my nice Yamadori, I'll water those with my RO. Yeah. The things like little cuttings, air layers that I'm growing out trunks, then I'll just uh -huh. use my regular city water yeah. on those. Yeah. I, I would say, um, sorry, there's a airplane coming over. Um, no worries. I, I would say for deciduous and, and things that are in refinement, um, the water quality um, actually does make a noticeable impact. Um, otherwise, if it's stuff you're growing or in the early stage, it's not that important. Uh, one thing that I'm going to try this year is that I, I don't think you really need the RO necessary, say like every day of the week. Um, essentially, the way I look at it is RO is flushing out um, access salts, building up in the soil, um, kind of just basically resetting the environment around the roots for the tree. Um, because when I was living in Oceanside and I had my RO system then too, um, but when I was traveling, right, I, I had my trees on irrigation and I was just getting the tap water from the city, which was, which was like terrible, right? It was like really high TDS. Um, it, it, it smelled kind of like fishy for whatever reason, um, but some kind of yeah, like weird stuff in there. And, and so when I was either gone, right, or say I have my trees on uh, irrigation and I water in the morning before work, um, back then when I still had my, my non-bonsai job, um, and I, I rely on the irrigation to water at those intervals, I knew it would get dry, it just wasn't there in person. And the trees still grew pretty healthy, and essentially that was you know, not maybe close to like a 50-50 split of getting RO water versus tap water. Um, so I think, especially, yeah, California, we have uh, potential drought concerns. Um, if you can just incorporate it, say like three days of the week, right, where you're flushing it and it has your dosing of nutrients, um, that might be enough, right? I think the trees are more resilient than we think. So my plan this year was to try to cut back on my my RO use and, and see if there's any noticeable difference if I do that. Very nice, very nice. One other thing I wonder about, I have, I, I've done it only a little bit is collecting rainwater. I feel like that could be another good way for people oh, in yeah, SoCal yeah, to, yeah. to water their trees. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, this, this year is a exception, right? We've had like the most rain in, 
in in debt. Well, I I don't know like the inches per per year. I mean, definitely at least the last 10, 15 years is the most. But in a lot of kind of local areas, like in the mountains and maybe some coastal regions,、um, at least in Southern California, is probably the most rain in like thirty years. Or I I don't know. It's it's, it's crazy. pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah.、Um, but yeah. <laughs> on a normal year, right? I mean, if there's like Like what? What rain? Right? What are you gonna fill your your rain、That's、buckets、true. with? So I mean, if if we could, it'd be pretty nice.、Um, but it's not reliable. Yeah. Totally. Hey, I was curious. Um, so I actually, and this may be a little bit early in the season. I was curious. Do you put shade cloth up? And and if so, when do you do that for your、uh, deciduous? Yeah. So for where I'm located right now. Um, kind of like in the the valleys up in, and I I'm I'm still in LA County, but more towards the mountainside. Um, it does get very hot, like in the late spring and summer. I mean, right now, I mean, this year's a little cooler than average, but we're still kind of low seventies. We might get random days here that are in the eighties. Um, seems to be very mild though, so、I、have no shade cloth on. Usually from next month. When say we're consistently mid 80s and higher, I'll put on shade cloth.、Um, I haven't had the need yet to put it on on the trees this month.、Um, we do have some individual days like in the high 80s and 90s, but I found kind of like one or two days that the trees are fine. It'll it'll just tolerate it.、Um, so normally I wait till maybe around mid May or so. I'll throw up the shade cloth. Nice. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I actually I just put mine on, although I know that I'm a little early on it.、Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a we have a couple uh, deg- uh, days in the 80s, and so I was just like, I just want to make sure I get it on. Better to get it on <laughs>、yeah. than not get it on.、Uh-huh. I had the time, and so I just went for it. So little little early.、Uh, yeah. The trees are, have all leafed out already and everything.、Mm-hmm. Um, but was just curious, what、uh, what percentage do you use? Like、um, I was using two different grades. Yeah, for the deciduous trees, I think I had fifty percent, and then conifers, I was using like thirty or forty percent. I want to use thirty.、Um, I just use forty because that's just like what I had last year.、Um, but usually, about thirty percent for the conifers is fine, and deciduous and anything that's kind of sensitive, fifty、uh, percent seems to do the job. Ah, gotcha. Okay.、Um, Yeah, I I leave my conifers out in full sun all year round, unless it's a really you know super high temp spike. Then I may put it under the shade cloth just for the day or something like that. But、mm-hmm. um, but I know like Peter has、uh, a lot of his conifers under shade cloth because it just gets so、yeah. hot up there. Yeah.、Uh, so yeah. you do the same, huh? Yeah. Yeah, and and your I've noticed the trees and the conifers, like especially junipers under shade cloth, they turn a touch greener. It's it's not like the tree is is being unhealthy under more sun. Is they're just compensating by making more、uh, chlorophyll,、um, right, and less sunlight.、Um, so so they they look a little nicer, a little more green when you have them、um, under shade cloth.、Um, yeah, as yeah. As long as your、okay. trees aren't getting burned, though, that's like the main thing. It, it seems seems okay. Yeah, definitely the most important. Uh, factor right there. You don't want to get them burned. Yeah, and yeah. I, I've been surprised. Even like,、uh, you know, junipers will get sunburnt if it oh, yeah, the temp yeah, spikes can, too high and and、yeah. too hot, which is very yeah. interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nice. Um, 
what kind of a uh, fertilizer do you use julian um so right now this is i mean this is how i i've been doing it the past year and a half um but i'll i'll use i essentially have two layers in my fertilizing regime one is uh or organic um i'm using uh grow power right now which is locally to me in in chino um but really you can you you can it has some humic acid in it um, but what I found most of the commercial organic fertilizers, they're very similar. They're all these, uh, animal and plant, uh, waste products, right? They'll have kind of alfalfa meal, cottonseed meal, whatever, something like that. So I more just focus on the NPK ratios. I don't care about the ingredients too much. Um, I will use, essentially, I will just treat this as a, a more kind of mild organic, uh, like maybe an equal ratio NPK fertilizer, just something that I know my trees are all getting some kind of baseline nutrition. Um, and then I'll have a second layer on top of that where I use Osmocote. And I'll put Osmocote on the trees that I purposefully, I, I'm developing something, I needed to grow more, I'm trying to push some kind of branch. Um, and that, that gives me some kind of control on my fertilizing regime, right? So stuff that I wanna keep otherwise healthy but not necessarily need to grow a lot, um, I do the organics only. Um, if it's a little bit of the development side, I'll have that kind of base layer of organics and I'll put some Osmocote on top of that. And that has worked well for me the past uh, year and a half. So I've just stuck with that. Um, occasionally I'll run uh, liquid fertilizer uh, through my uh, sub pump from the, from the kind of uh, the trash can that I use with the RO system. And maybe here and there kind of just mass water all the trees with some kind of liquid fertilizer. Um, overall seems to work for me. So, yeah. Great. That's definitely another advantage that I've learned of using RO with the sub pump and the trash can. Yeah. <laughs> so you can just, you know, instead of having to buy a fertilizer injector, like a dosatron, yeah, yeah. you can just put your liquid right in that trash can and, and water. That's fantastic. Yeah. It's like, it's like easy and just do everything at once. So, yeah. Yeah. Can I ask, um, how you are managing disease and pests currently like fungicide um, insecticide are you spraying a lot yeah so i mean the the biggest thing i found before you even apply the chemicals is just keeping your trees as healthy as you can to begin with and the disease tolerance will just be much better and you'll you, you won't see as much stuff show up in your garden uh, trying to like cure so it's kind of like curing the symptoms versus the cause, right? Um, fungicides, insecticides, you're addressing the problem after it's emerged. Um, but the better approach I feel for any bonsai practitioner is just making sure your trees are set up in a way that it's growing healthy and just more resilient to begin with. Because uh, I don't have too heavy-handed approach of insecticides and fungicides. I'll use some uh, systemics. Uh, one is... Uh, uh, thymol-based uh, fungicide. It's like Clary's, um, but there's a lot of products that use the same active ingredient. Um, I'll do that kind of just for general fungus issues. Um, I have some uh, imidacloprid. It's a, a granular systemic insecticide, or they sell granular in liquid forms. Um, that'll be good for kind of like uh, borers or any kind of sap sucking insects on your trees. Um, occasionally spray with uh, malathion. Um, I seem to not have to use that too much, um, but that's good for like aphids. I would say the thing where it really matters, right? It's not just keeping the tree healthy. That's like a big deal in Southern California is spider mites. Um, 
because spider mites love hot dry climates your tree can be perfectly healthy and it can still get spider mites in that case i feel it really matters to have a, a actual dedicated miticide um, to treat that um, so i use a uh, fluoramite right now um, i think it's like a hundred bucks for an eight ounce bottle on amazon so a lot of people you know they they kind of scoff at that it's really expensive i think the dilution ratio is um a quarter teaspoon per gallon or something i mean so that bottle you know can last you whatever five plus years if you have a lot of nice trees or junipers it's it's kind of a no-brainer investment than letting your trees kind of get set back um so that part definitely matters uh, yeah that's that's uh in a way in a weird way it makes me feel better that you said spider mites <laughs> because that's my number one insect issue yeah, that i get yeah. Yeah. And it's very interesting. Like I only get them on certain trees. Mm -hmm. uh, so Kishu juniper is like the number one for me. And yeah. then yeah. I sometimes get them on coast live oak. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. uh, but, you know, I'll have an Itoagawa and a Kishu right next to each other and they'll go for the Kishu. Yeah. Um, and I'm probably be if, you know, if I just kept, let it keep going, they would go after the Itoagawa yeah. afterwards. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, uh, Kishu, <laughs> they're like, they just go after those ones so much. Yeah, yeah. Well, what, while we're on the topic of uh, junipers, I was curious, uh, what generally makes you decide to graft on a on Yamadori or not? Right, so... Juniper, talking junipers. Yeah, yeah. So the, I mean, the big advantage or the kind of the obvious reasons for grafting is, right, you want a better foliage type. It's more kind of manageable for the purposes of bonsai. And it all kind of like, um, right, we should kind of break that down more. Like what, what does it mean, right? A foliage is, is better for bonsai. Um, it's, it's uh, of course, there's some aesthetic aspect, right, in how the foliage looks. Um, but I think foliage quality is more relating to this uh, craft aspect of bonsai where, you're, it's not a one-shot deal, right? Where you style the tree and then it just looks good forever, right? Your your tree's gonna grow, branches are gonna change. You can ideally, with the passage of time, your tree should express that age uh, better and better and better. And that has a lot to do with the branching, right? In terms of the ramification, how do you sustain branching that's very old, fine, and dense? Um, and if you can build upon layer and layer and layer of your tree, it just kind of carries this story of time better. Um, so for the issue with uh, junipers and a lot of our uh, native junipers in the U.S., I mean, the foliage is very uh, heavy and coarse. And say, even if we build some part of the tree with it or we style it, um, there it's kind of this is a weird way to put it, but it's kind of shelf life on the tree is, is much shorter in that the structure doesn't hold as long. Your tree will outgrow it. Maybe it will flop. Um, and then that this kind of concept, I, I like to tell people um, age and cultivation in your bonsai, right? Not just how physically old your tree is. Um, but how old it is as bonsai and how successfully it conveys that, right? If you work on a tree for 20 years, you want it to showcase that kind of story that it has progressed over 20 years. Um, but say on a very like floppy Rocky Mountain juniper or whatever, and you wired it, it looks okay. And maybe in a few years, it kind of falls apart and you have to rebuild some parts of it. 
even if you work on that tree for 20 years, that kind of cycle of rejuvenation might be a five-year or shorter-year period. Um, so your tree, in a sense, does not appreciate an age as better um, compared to a chinensis. And this is like not like a knock on like, oh, American foliage sucks and using Japanese. Um, I mean, a good way to think about it is a lot of these high mountain junipers, right? These are kind of semi-arid, high elevation desert climates in the U.S. And there is much, much less annual precipitation. We compare to Japan, right? This like island in the Pacific, just tons of rain year round. Um, so a foliage type in that very humid, wet climate, right? It can support a very compact, dense high surface area foliage right like a kishu nitoigawa it's just by nature of the climate the the foliage develops like that and makes it more suitable for bonsai whereas like in the u.s if you had such a compact dense high surface area foliage the tree in the native environment probably does not get enough uh, water to actually sustain that naturally um, so i think it's just by nature of our regions and climates we don't have as many uh, suitable foliage types for the purposes of bonsai cultivation and showing this concept of age. Um, it's not that they're they're bad, right? And they still can look good. Um, I still enjoy some native foliage types, um, but for me, there is some kind of middle ground where uh, one, of course, you have your natural character of the tree, um, but how can we progress it as bonsai more? Um, which often is just better right with the the grafted material um an another thing that <clears throat> i find kind of um funny on this concept is is some people they'll they'll tell me right they they don't like grafting because it's like disrespecting the tree or whatever and right it's not natural i i mean bonsai is like so far from natural <laughs> it is very manipulated and we kind of impose our you know value set and kind of aesthetic on it and we ripped it out from nature and whatever and of course yamadori is, is amazing i have some yamadori as well um, but i think if if it's because you feel it's kind of dishonoring the tree then it's probably you shouldn't have even dug it out right so I mean, I, I have kind of no issue with that, and, and I, I like to graft. I think it's better, um, and you end up with a better tree. This is a, a fun topic. I enjoy thinking <laughs> about it, yeah. and it's fun to hear different opinions on it. Uh, uh -huh. Some people are very much, hey, I absolutely will not graft ever. Some <laughs> people are, I graft every single tree. Yeah. Um, and so I appreciate and, and enjoy <laughs> hearing your perspective on yeah. it. I think where I'm at personally is uh, I like variety and, uh, you know, I, I, and I have quite a few junipers, partly because I've, I've collected quite a few Sierra junipers, but uh, I like, you know, to have a, a little of each. So yeah. kind of the way yeah. that I've divided things up in my mind is if I have a, a smaller tree, it's generally pretty hard for me to keep That's right. that yeah. larger, you know, native foliage on it and create mm -hmm. something that, a design that works well for me. So I've generally tended to, to graft smaller trees with Ito Ogawa, Kishu or Fudo, which I yeah. want to talk to you about yeah. in a sec. Yeah. <laughs> um, however, uh, like with larger trees, it also kind of depends on uh, the foliage quality of the specific tree because yeah. there's so much yeah. genetic diversity. Mm -hmm. 
some of our Sierras, for example, you know, they have a really nice uh, foliage and uh, nice color. You know, they don't have the little pollen sacs mm -hmm. and it, it grows relatively tight. So what I've kind of started doing is rating them on like a one to 10 scale. So, you know, this Sierra is an eight in the foliage quality, 10 being perfect, one being totally horrible. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so <clears throat> larger trees, if it's like an eight or above, I will keep the foliage. Otherwise I, I graft. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm very interested in continuing to find uh, better qualities of foliage on our native trees like yeah. by collecting mm -hmm. and i think it would be really cool if we actually grafted you know like the best quality rocky mountain juniper onto a rocky mountain juniper i think that could be really cool i i haven't seen a ton of that occurring yet but mm -hmm. uh it it makes me excited about the the future and to see what happens what, what we do in the future with that yeah <laughs> yeah I mean, I, I definitely agree on that aspect of if you have a, a bigger tree, right, the coarser foliage can look in proportion with it. And if it's the right relative scale, then it can look pretty nice. <clears throat> but yeah, smaller stuff like say like Chuhin size and below or even a little bit bigger than Chuhin, I will almost always graft it. Um, but if it's like a much larger tree, then, then I can see the argument, uh, being made to keep it native. Um, one kind of, yeah, I, I haven't really seen people taking, cause like, like Itogawa in Japan, right? So it's like a cultivated a variety from nature. Um, so of course, why couldn't we do that with, uh, Rockies and other varieties? Um, I mean, I have, I, I've seen some more compact Rocky mountain junipers, that essentially it's like a coarse itoigawa it's like the same color as itoigawa but it's it's the foliage type just coarser um from what i've seen when they're healthy it grows pretty compact and turgid but if the tree is in any kind of state of non-vigor or stress that you do still get that floppiness uh even with the compact foliage um, the other issue, and this is kind of relates to what I was talking about of our foliage types for kind of the natural uh, high elevation semi-arid climates in the U.S., um, is that these foliage types are much slower growing compared to a Kishu Nitogawa, which is used to that kind of abundance of mo moisture in their natural environment. They can tolerate this denser foliage and faster growing rate. So for a lot of our kind of native species, um, the physical growth is just slower as well. So then what that translates to, if you're scion grafting or something like that, um, your margin of error is just gonna be, it has to be much smaller. Um, say you're putting in your scion and you fudge the, the lineup, the cambiums are all messed up. I mean, you might get some leeway on a, a chinensis variety, but I think on a slower growing native juniper, it's much more likely for that graft to fail. Um, so I think it's just harder to do as well. Hmm. <clears throat> Makes sense. Makes sense. Uh, cool. And then, yeah, so I saw that you grafted uh, Fudo, which is not super common. I haven't seen that a whole lot. Uh -huh. Although, <laughs> um, and I don't know uh, where I got my Fudo originally. I like bought, I'm pretty sure I bought it on eBay. Like I bought a little, uh, 
whip like many years ago and i was like yeah. oh this is interesting it's a little more more blue yeah and i saw yeah. that you grafted some rocky mountain junipers with it i grafted uh one sierra with fudo uh-huh. and uh so far i mean i think it's going to be a really cool foliage oh, type yeah. to use yeah. Yeah. um how has your experience been with it for grafting i mean i i got the the kind of raw material um it was from ed clark um a few years ago and when I saw it, I mean, I didn't know what Fudo was. I was just like, oh, this is like a really blue juniper chinensis. And the coarseness quality, right, is it's like it's like a very good Kishu. Um, it's like nice and dense. I mean, maybe even a little finer than Kishu. So great foliage characteristic. Seems to grow very hardy. So kind of no health issues with it. Initially, I got it um, because, I mean, I, I liked that kind of Sierra blue, Rocky Mountain blue color. I mean, it's not like... a a kind of brighter blue like Sierra, but it can get pretty close. Um, And initially my idea was to offer that uh, to the kind of uh, non-grafting purists, right? Who like poo-poo and all the chinensis um, because it looks more similar to our uh, native foliage color. (laughs) So, So I found that you can get that quality of a chinensis, but somewhat maintain that that tone and color of a native foliage um, is, looks really good, grows very well. Um, so I've been grafting. Uh, I have a, a kind of Shohin Sierra Juniper in that kind of Rocky Mountain I posted. I've been grafting those. Uh, seems to take well. It's developing. Um, so I, I think it's a great uh, foliage type. Um, hope to see it more on some trees. Yeah, that's rad. And I would love to at some someday because I haven't actually seen yours in person, but uh-huh. we could compare side by side. I'm curious if mine actually is Fudo no, I, or I gave um, uh, Peter a plant last year. A Fudo. Oh, sweet! It was from Ed, and um, I'm I'm pretty sure it's the same as what I have. So yeah, nice, <laughs> nice. Yeah. very cool. I'll, I'll look at his. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm a man of variety. Variety is definitely the spice of life. And so, you know, I want uh, a few different types of juniper personally. That's just my thing. So, okay. I have some kind of wacky ideas that I want to run by you for SoCal specifically. Yeah. Well, actually, actually, so one question I have, have you seen people graft black pine onto Ponderosa and then keep it long-term in SoCal? Like, have you seen so, I mean, that, part, that actually be successful? I, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure. Right. I mean, I think it's kind of a, a newish by newish, like 10 last 10 to 15 years that people have really been grafting black pine on Ponderosa. So we don't have a lot of examples of like really nice <laughs> refined trees. Right. And because there is some concern with the long-term uh, matching right of the rootstock to graft material i mean grafts can can fell over time even if they take um so i i mean uh, i mentioned the other professional uh, uh john wong um before and and when he was more active as a professional he used to buy a lot of really nice uh ponderosas from randy knight and, and he was um grafting a lot of those and some and some of them seem to take one thing um that and this is I'm I'm still trying to test this out myself. I'm not sure um, that uh, I, I I think at least during the grafting process, right? Your tree still needs 
the dormancy until that black pine is like really <laughs> established on there i mean just for the the understock to grow healthy you your tree still should be overwintering because um, i think before uh john he had some you know a lot of grass that took and then some years he would uh board the tree at his place um he used to board with um some other professionals before or or boone when he was at valley springs um, but it seemed like on the years that the tree either got shocked from some kind of stressor or didn't get the dormancy those graphs started to get rejected um, so i i got um one of the ponderosas that um well is my customer's tree but he had it um with john and it was boarded at boone's place in valley springs before um i mean that tree was almost dead <laughs> a few years ago and um it, it was attempted grafted before and all of them failed um so i mean i i wasn't even sure if the tree was going to live um so when i i took over that tree i mean i i boarded it at uh peter's right just to give it um some semblance of a winter dormancy i think after that first year of dormancy and then we grafted the following the same season of right after the 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 door the boarding period uh, it seemed to grow, you know, much healthier. I mean, the ponderosa foliage came out healthier, and then the, well, the grafts they they kind of just stood there. I, I wasn't wasn't sure if they took, and and this was actually uh, my bad. But I brought the tree back again uh, this following winter to board at Peter's place, and I forgot to take off like uh, the old pear film from last year <laughs> on some grafts, right? So it kind of just set sat there for another winter very cold wet <laughs> california winter and and a lot of those um center buds uh they rotted out and i was like oh shit like just destroyed the grass on my customers trees and oh, i brought i brought the tree back to where i am right now and and all of them most of them all started growing so even though the center bud rotted out at the base of all the needles they're all pushing new candle buds uh so and so i was i was shocked um, i thought those were goner for sure so i think just getting that consistent dormant period ongoing with the grafting process seems to be much more robust um, but in terms of the long term and say like 10 years right because five years i think even five years is too short to really know i i'm not sure if it's viable or not i there's no way but to just try it <laughs> so i don't yeah yeah you know i i've heard a lot of professionals say that uh it it can be done like a pine will take on the characteristics of the foliage type mm -hmm. so if you if you graft a ponderosa with black pine it will live in socal yeah. um i just haven't seen anyone have like own that for long periods of time oh no, yeah yeah so if, if anyone is out there and they have it please uh -huh. Show it to me. <laughs> I, I know, um, you know, uh, Danny Martinez, right? He's well, he's at the Santa Barbara Club, and I just saw him at the workshop. I know he has one um, black pine grafted ponderosa. I think it's from uh, Ryan. I, I mean, he's he's had it a good number of years, maybe like five years. I don't know if like ten years, but at least for the time he had it, I mean, it seems to be okay. I mean, he he could be somebody to ask to see how it's been been going um cool. but uh, but it seems possible just not that many examples like long-term examples i mean so just yeah. time will tell and and we'll know how how robust it is yeah 
Time will tell. Time will tell. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm really excited about that. I mean, Ponderosa is definitely in my top three of all different types of, of trees. I love uh, yeah. Ponderosa. I have one at Peter's house and I'm grafting it with black pine, uh, you know, really hoping that it, I can oh, keep it yeah. in my house. <laughs> I mean, that, um, that tree is the the one you have. That's like an insane trunk. I mean, if, if you got that one fully black pine and strong, I mean, that's like a, a show winner tree. It just has, has like, I mean, the presence, if you can have, say, the the impact and presence of a Yamadori, right? Um, like during the Pacific Expo, there's a Randy Knight's uh, Ponderosa, right? That got uh, the best in show. So if you, that can, if you can have that kind of uh, presence in terms of the age and kind of that raw character of the tree, but then the that kind of cultivation aspect of bonsai, right? If you have both of those together, those are like shoe-in show winners usually um i mean they they do very well generally um so I hope, thank I hope you very much <laughs> yeah i'm yeah, i'm yeah. crossing all my fingers and my toes <laughs> and yeah. shout out backcountry bonsai for uh for letting me buy that tree from them <laughs> oh, <laughs> i yeah, love that tree yeah. <laughs> for sure cool yeah i mean if that if that does work i feel like i don't know in the future like 30 years from now, I could see uh, bonsai professionals that are outside of the area in <clears throat> climates where it actually gets cold during the during the winter. Mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, getting a bunch of, of ponderosa and other types of pine and grafting them for people in SoCal. Yeah, and, yeah. and that's like their business model, could, you know, they just could, sell those. Could be, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, one, one, uh, one thing I'm thinking about and kind of playing with <clears> is... Um, <throat> There's a, a native pine uh, called bishop pine, uh-huh. and uh, the needles are not as long. Like they're probably a fourth ish the size of ponderosa or so. They're they're pretty small. Yeah, and uh, it just it's a very hardy pine. Nice green straight needle, um, and kind of another thought that I have is is purchasing yamadori from someone like Randy Knight or the backcountry bonsai. And grafting uh, bishop pine on it, just just to have something else besides black pine. Yeah, uh, in SoCal. <laughs> uh, oh, one other um, Yamadori pine that may not actually need a dormant period is a uh, pinion pines, um, because we do actually have some old one. I'm like in like been in SoCal for for decades, right? Um, um, and, and because the, the range of the pinion pine, it goes all the way down to like Baja, Mexico. <clears throat> so they, they tolerate, um, seemingly right. The lack of a, I mean, they're kind of like a mid elevation tree. So they, they still grow in kind of cold ish areas. Um, but one of my customers, um, and, and he's kind of like in a foothill area, not terribly high elevation, something like 1700 feet. Um, he has this, um, uh, pinion pine that, well, he bought it from, uh, Tom Vong, right? One of our collectors down here. And he took it down from the mountains and he had it where he is in orange County for like three years. Um, that even that on its own, right? I don't know if it's like good or not. Cause you, pines, especially old collected material, they can stay kind of just in limbo for a bit, just not doing anything. And it'll just suddenly die. Right. So I was very, um, 
nervous, right? I was like, oh, I don't know if this is going to work out. We'll just try it out. Um, so he brought it to his place. I mean, he gets a touch colder than where I am. Um, so kind of a dormant period, but not like a hard freeze or anything. Um, and well, it's been like another three years since then. And the, the tree is still alive and it's healthy. It's been growing. Um, yeah, that's so that's great. like, oh, like, you know, six at least six years maybe seven years from the mountain now and seems to be okay um so that's another thing worth for the collectors out there right to worth pursuing in terms of offering yamadori for more uh mild climates uh pinion pines could be a candidate very nice very nice very cool yeah yeah hopefully uh we get some more pinion pine and i i would love to to try one out yeah great <clears throat> awesome well and so julian i don't know how much time you have so if oh, at any I mean, time i'm, I'm go, fine can okay go to <laughs> well i'm gonna keep going <laughs> yeah, and if you yeah, if you yeah. need to yeah. bounce out that's totally cool um cool why don't we talk a little bit mm -hmm. about oaks i, I was cu really curious to pick your brain about oaks because i saw you doing some cool stuff with them mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um uh so yeah i guess uh, you know oaks are uh a tree that I'm very interested in. I was thinking about it the other day, and I think that Coast Live Oak is probably the tree that I've seen the most. Like I, I've probably seen the most of them, and I've seen them the most frequently out of any other tree in my entire life, just because yeah. they grow all over the place down in San Luis Obispo and Santa Barbara counties. And mm -hmm. um, at my house now, there's like 15 mature Coast Live Oaks, and uh, I've just always loved oaks i think they're beautiful majestic trees they can get really old they have uh cool bark and uh just beautiful trees all around um uh have you been experimenting with with coast live oak primarily is that the species that you've been working with um yeah i mean i have both uh coast live oaks and uh cork oaks um i mean i treat them uh, pretty much the same i mean great species for bonsai i mean very hardy um it has a good ability to kind of reduce its internode size um of course uh, and good for these uh mild kind of hotter climates um so all around right a great species for bonsai looks great um robust has nice bark and age they're long-lived deciduous species as well um, so, so I really enjoy them. I've been kind of messing with a few and growing, growing them since I started as a hobbyist. Um, yeah. Sweet. Nice. Uh, any horticultural tips you like for oaks? Do you, uh, like, do you just, what soil type do you use also? Um, so this is like an experiment the last, um, two years. I, I cannot say de definitively if it makes a huge difference or not. Um, but I started putting a little bit of Kanuma in my oak mixes just cause I heard some of the professionals did that for their cork oaks. Um, you know, I wasn't initially sure of the full story of why they use Kanuma for the cork oaks. Uh, one possibility is, uh, say like in Spain in some sections, it can be very similar to Southern California. Uh, very kind of uh, alkaline, uh, hard water. Um, so if you use a more acidic soil, I mean, it can help uh, mitigate that by basically, it's more of like the environment around your soil that matters more, right? If um, So if you can get that kind of water or soil environment by the roots in that lower pH range, it can help have a better 
uh, balance of accessible nutrients, right, like iron and whatnot. Um, but if you have ready clean water to begin with or using RO, I don't know how much it matters. But I thought I'd just try it anyways because the semen wouldn't hurt. Um, so I, I subbed in a small percentage of the Alkadama, replaced it with Kanuma in my oak mixes. I mean, it's been over two seasons I've been doing that, and they grow very healthy. There's no issues. Uh, at least I don't see any downsides to using it. So tentatively, I just kind of keep that as my oak mix. Um, other than that, very robust. Uh, one thing I do in terms of my uh, repotting for oaks, um, I prefer to repot them uh, early instead of, say, right when the buds swell and the leaves come out. Um, what I have found is that, I mean, when they do start growing, they move water very fast. So if you repot on the tail end of the window or very late, sometimes your tree can get like transpiration stress where it's just losing too much moisture from the leaves relative to what you cut off from the roots and it will actually slow the tree down um, get some kind of shock i found if you repot them early even before the buds start moving they respond perfectly fine um, had no issues so i tend to do kind of well in southern california it'd be like early january to mid-january before they really get going um, uh, seems to work um, at least in my area so i've, I've kind of stuck with that for now um, you also can do some defoliation with oaks and generally I find there's just only two windows to do it. Um, one is at the start of the year when the tree will already kind of, I mean not all the leaves drop at once, but they'll start shedding their leaves after they're about a year, year and a half old. Um, so you can just kind of force it and, and cut them off at the tail end of that window. Um, so kind of early spring and a winter um, just gives you a little bit more control to see the branch structure cut things back and try to because uh, you don't want to just kind of topiary prune and hedge the tree right you want to build um, that's like another discussion right we talk about building deciduous branches um, so it just gives you a little bit more control over that I found if your trees are very strong and vigorous growing you can do it again usually early summer um, around June uh, the tree will grow back again very strongly other than that I, I pretty much treat them the same as other kind of broadleaf or deciduous trees in terms of just cutbacks and building branches. Um, overall, though, a great species to work with, uh, very hardy, and, and they look awesome too. Absolutely. Yeah. Very nice. I'll have to experiment with some Kanuma. I, I've just used Akadama and Pumice, which has worked well, but yeah, yeah. always worth uh, experimenting with. And I've heard about some professionals using Kanuma, so I, I like that idea. That's cool. Mm -hmm. Nice. Um, what do you think about the the oak style in bonsai? Yeah. So, so actually, I mean, I I really like that um, because I mean I've drive so many times like the past um, like year, two years, just going over um, the the grapevine Gorman's Pass, and I, I drive all the way down and back the five and ninety nine so many times. So I. I, and, and recently, especially this year, I'm going on the 101 on the coast. So I, I see all those, uh, a lot of them are, are valley oaks. Um, they have these great uh, cascading branches. And, and for me, the oaks, the oak form, right, looks a lot like some of the penjing bonsai, um, hmm. where there's this kind of emphasis on directional pruning and building your primary line. Um, so essentially your primary branch line carries a lot of uh, uh, changes in direction, a lot of visual interest and visual weight. 
um, which is kind of like our oaks in their natural habitat um, because wood is very dense, branches are heavy, um, they kind of sag and taper down or maybe some uh, older parts rot and die out, right? And they'll send a new directional line which grows and you kind of repeat that pattern many times, right? And you'll have very impressive tree forms where that kind of core primary secondary branch structure, right, has a lot of uh, interesting lines and this uh, repetitionist shape, which for me kind of is is similar to some uh, penjing bonsai. Or we, I mean, I think on my my blog I, I showed some examples. It might have been a, a bougainvillea that had this really broad canopy, um, but it looks very much like a, a valley oak. Um, so I think it's a totally legit aesthetic, um, something we can make <laughs> in our trees. Yeah. <clears throat> and I am also a big fan of the the oak style. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think, I, I mean, I guess, <clears throat> is there, there are no trees that really grow like that in Japan? You in nature, I, I'm not an expert on yeah, how trees I, grow. I don't know. Yeah, the, the oaks that I've seen in Japan, and they do have both deciduous and evergreen oaks. I mean, they seem just more upright in growth habit, um, not that kind of stout, kind of really gnarled branch form. Um, I, yeah, I don't. I'm. I don't know. I mean, at least like in the part of Japan I was in, I did not see trees with that kind of characteristic. Maybe possible in other areas of Japan. Um, yeah. And the only reason I ask is there's not, I don't really see, I see a broom style, kind of like a modified broom style yeah, in Japan, yeah. but not like a true oak style. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's something that I uh, am very interested in and I, I mm. like to uh, create my oaks in, in like an oak style and uh, I'm excited to see the future of oak oak trees as bonsai in the U.S. Um, I, I like them also in like more of a traditional bonsai shape, you know, yeah. but I uh, really love the oak style. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's fantastic. I, I agree. Nice. You know, I saw that you did some thread grafting with mm -hmm. oaks. Yeah. Um, was that is that six like i haven't seen a lot of people do root <laughs> yeah, so, i think you said did root grafting too right um i think not on an oak yeah. the root grafting but I, I did try thread grafts on an oak i mean i figured as long as you time the defoliation of the branch where you i mean of course it would have to grow right you need to ensure it's strong enough that here and save save you only defoliate the one branch you thread graft and you leave leaves on everything else a lot of times that branch is not going to grow because your tree is seeking the path of the least resistance to grow. So why would it grow on this branch you just cut when there's all these other healthy tips around it? But if you can time it right with the defoliation where you know it's going to grow, I mean, it seems it can work. I mean, I first tried it on some of my own oaks um, and, and the graft did grow, but, but it ultimately failed. And because the site that I cut the graft, uh, the thread hole on, even though the cut was very clean and well sealed, it's like the oak just doesn't want to callous. It doesn't form, like in the sense if you look at a maple, right? Um, the oaks, even when you try to heal big wounds, right? They just, they they much easier for it to recede than actually callousing. Um, 
but I, I tried again on uh, <laughs> one of my customers. I was like, well, we'll just give it a shot. I mean, does it not going to hurt? And, and that one actually seems like it's taking. And, and, um, and it seems not as reliable as maples just because of the growth characteristic of the tree. Um, when it gets some kind of trauma on the bark branch or whatever, right, it, it's not a kind of very easily callous producing uh, species. So possible, but not reliable. <laughs> Man, props for attempting. I think that's awesome. Oh, I see yeah. a lot of people just, just wanted to see. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that, that's fantastic. Yeah. Maybe I, I mean I'm sure if the if you could get the tree just really pumping, super yeah, vigorous, it's you probably have strong, better then, success. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm glad you went for it, and uh, I think hey, why not? Like, let's figure out what is uh, doable and what's not doable with with oak. Yeah. And I, I know we're talking about coast live oak, but with all the mm-hmm. oaks, Valley Oak is awesome yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, I'm also kind of interested in uh, scrub oak uh-huh. uh, just because they have really small little leaves. And yeah, I think they yeah. could be I've cool for like those. Yeah. smaller trees. Yeah. 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 There, there's this guy in um, the Santa Barbara Club. Um, his name was Joe. I forgot his last name. Um, but anyways, older uh, gentleman and, and he has a lot of oak trees that, that he all grew from acorn. Like every time I, I go up there for a workshop, he's like, he's like, Oh, I don't have to tell you, but all these trees are older than you. <laughs> he grew from acorn for like 50 years. Yeah. Very impressive. And they're of course, That's right. old trees. Now I think he had a scrub oak. Um, he had some like, like, interesting trees which he grew himself from scratch right which is yeah. really impressive that's um, so cool i think I would, they can make nice bonsai yeah i would love to see his collection someday mm-hmm. yeah that's yeah. very cool um yeah uh what about uh air layering have you tried to air layer coastal yeah, oak i have not um i mean i've heard kind of like mixed results on that i mean i don't have my own personal experience i mean i think it's possible especially if the branch or whatnot is very strong i I don't see why it shouldn't work because i mean just the concept of air layering right um you're cutting off that cambium you're forcing the tree to build up more kind of sugar and callus there and that trapping all the hormones i mean at some point as long as you protect that cut you know, it, sh- it should grow roots. Doesn't, I mean, I, so I think it's, I think it can be done, but I, I haven't tried it. Yeah. Gotcha. It seems like with air layering, it's like about how young the tissue is and then yeah. how vigorous it is. Like, yeah. uh, yeah. down here, George Muranaka, he, he, uh, bonsai nursery in Napomo, uh-huh. they air layer black pines and his success rate's like super high. Yeah. But he's just air layering the top of the can, like a, a brand new candle. Yeah, he that's air layers right. that uh-huh. Yeah. Whereas if you try and air layer like a super old black pine, I mean, like- It's like not guaranteed. <laughs> it's going to yeah. go, yeah, downhill yeah. quite a bit. Yeah. But um, yeah, one, one, one reason I, I, so I've collected a, a few coast live oaks, uh-huh. um, just got poison oak the last time I did, which was not cool. But yeah. <laughs> um, I see a lot of them with really bulbous bases. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of coast live oaks. And then they just have this like pineapple base at the bottom. But then yeah. the, there's no nabari like right off of that. It's all under, yeah. you know, it's like usually a big tap root. Uh-huh. And I just think if you could collect that big bulbous base yeah. and then either air layer or graft roots along that that base you just have such a killer base and that it would be really cool to make oak 
bonsai like that. I mean, I think it's possible, especially like ground layers where it's already kind of bark or cambium that's been moist and underground a lot. I mean, it should be easier to produce roots from those sections. Um, I think it's just making sure the tree is robust and healthy. Um, but I think the ground layers seem more realistic than air layering. I, I see that being possible. For sure. Cool. Um, one thing that I have found with, with Oak is, uh, like, and I don't know why I'm doing this, but there's, I ha so at my house, there's like 15 Oaks. So I always get these acorns and they just volunteer little Oak seedlings. Yeah. So I started doing a uh, seedling cutting technique, like uh -huh. on black pine, you know, in the <laughs> bonsai the today. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, uh, it totally works. Oh, like you okay. just dip it in some rooting hormone yeah. Yeah. and you'll get nice radial Nabari wow. uh, shooting out. Um, yeah. So you, you can do that, which yeah. is cool for creating, you know, creating yeah. trees. Because <laughs> I, I, I was always wondering, because if, if it's like a fresh, like acorn seedling and it's the, the roots are still connected to the acorn, right? It's relying on that as it's kind of a nutrient source and you do a kind of seedling cutting on that. I didn't know if it was going to just wither up and die because you just cut off its, its uh, food source. But uh, that's cool to know that works. So one thing, and I can't like, so I'm very non-scientific when I, when I <laughs> yeah. have been doing these, I have been cutting it below the, the actual acorn, uh -huh. which I guess is like eating oh, okay. it yeah. and then yeah. above it as well. Yeah. And I like some of them do die, uh -huh. <laughs> um, but yeah. so unfortunately I'm not giving you a great answer, but, but <laughs> It's doable. This I can't remember if it's yeah, below yeah, or above yeah. the acorn, but uh -huh. it does work. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Nice. Um, cool. Oh, and then one last thing about oaks is I remember you saying, or maybe some pictures uh, where you had the branches like coming down and, and touching the ground, which mm -hmm. I thought was just cool. And yeah. an interesting idea because I see that out in the, you know, in nature. Yeah. I mean, I, I wanted to try that out. I mean, of course you need a very strong low branch, right? Letting it run a lot and, and basically try to get it a self ground layer. I just like the idea of your, cause right. That's like a Oak form. You can actually see where you just have these really thick, heavy primary branches rooted into the ground. Uh, you know, a trees like that exist in, in penging, but with different species where they have these very wild and interesting trunk to root branch relations. There are trees like that that already exist, not an oak species. Um, but I, I don't see why it couldn't work. I mean, you just grow grow a very strong low branch and kind of layer it on the bottom and just keep it a part of the composition can look very interesting. So some, something to try out. <laughs> I love it, man. Uh, great job experimenting with that. And that's, that's really fun to play around with. Nice work. Yeah. <laughs> Sweet. Cool. Cool. So kind of, uh, my last, uh, topic that I wanted to hit on with you, if that's cool mm, yeah, is, um, yeah. on your blog post, I, I really uh -huh. enjoyed your blog post. I definitely recommend everyone go check it out. Um, what's your website again? Uh, it's, uh, just bonsai.com. Great name. Yeah. Great name. Just bonsai. Yeah, it's from my, uh, my, my dad, he's <laughs> gave me that name awesome. to use it and just simple, easy to remember. So yeah, it's solid. I love it. Nice work. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, you did a, a great, uh, post on deciduous bonsai creating, 
uh, creating and growing branches on ramification. Mm-hmm. Um, the title of the blog post was why did I cut off all the branches? Yeah. Uh, so I was hoping you could maybe kind of just summarize some of the key points there. Um, and I'll start it off by saying, so why do, why did you cut off all the branches on your Trident Maple? Okay. <laughs> because it looked pretty nice, you know, to, I think yeah, a lot it of had, people you know, say, had some kind of tree form, um, seem reasonably mature. Um, so, you know, at first that's kind of like, in a sense I did, right. I, I set the tree back, um, but with the idea to improve it to something, uh, better, um, so, I mean, I'll kind of first give some context and, and how I see a lot of uh, new deciduous trees and work out there being made. And, and in a sense, it's I feel many people try to apply this, the methodology we use on conifers, right? Junipers, wire and style them, maybe some little bit of pruning to design our deciduous trees. Um, but just the nature of the tree is different. It's very hard to build your trees that way. Um, if we wire our branches on a deciduous tree, right? And, and you can still wire it to change some lines and directions, but say wiring as a styling method to build your tree. I mean, at best, you you add some movement in your tree or some general shape. Generally, when you have wire on the tree, though, um, on the branches, the branch lines will have more contrast. So it might look very you know interesting when it's fully wired out. Um, but your core... Uh, kind of how do I put it like the reality the structure of the tree right it's it's the same I mean wire does not add or remove branches right we are just uh, repositioning lines on a tree Um, so kind of then my whole concept I was trying to uh, give across in that blog post was just showing how do we build branches that one in part uh, character Um, they show scaling of the tree. So, you know, relative to the trunk, uh, how do we get our inner node size shorter, um, and have more ramification, Um, right? Just as we look at, you know, any of the oaks off the highway or any deciduous tree outside, right? For a, say like a 70 foot tall tree, it's probably like 5,000 plus branches on that tree. And, and if you want to maintain that sense of scale, and stature right on bonsai on a smaller tree you know like who is to say that you could not have also five thousand branches on on your small tree um in theory if the scaling of the branches relative to the trunk is perfect if you show somebody a photo of that tree they should have no idea how big it is and generally i find the best bonsai have that perfect sense of scale Um, their presence in person just has much more impact when those elements uh, making the design are just much better in proportion. So I kind of broke that article down into three sections where cutbacks generally produce um, three things on, um, well, two things on deciduous trees and the third part, which is kind of like a background relating to it. Um, The first was like um, that graft you mentioned um, where we need to accommodate space as we build out our tree to build ramification. Um, so the kind of way I portrayed that, um, I had this essentially exponential graph where say we cut a branch and it bifurcates. We go from two branches, you cut it, it bifurcates again, four, eight, 16, so forth. You keep on repeating that process, right? Your, your gain of branches, right? Is exponential. You can have a very high, 
uh, density of branches as you reach that outer silhouette. Um, so the whole point of that is when you begin your branch building process, and this is more on the principle, right? Because the technique will then depend on the species, how you're managing the inner nodes. There's definitely more to be said there. So this is kind of just very broadly just on the principle. Um, as you're building your branches, if you can accommodate essentially many layers of cutbacks, starting with a smaller tree and growing outwards, it, you have essentially many opportunities to increase branch density versus say we have some tree, right? There's some branches on it and we wire it to make it some nice kind of lines and you maintain that tree just by cutting the periphery on the outside, your ability to gain density is just, it's exponentially lower actually because we are not accommodating uh, layers to build more branching if that kind of makes sense so it's kind of starting smaller and building outwards to your and this is nothing to do with aesthetic right this is you can have many different aesthetic approaches with this concept uh, but it's the idea of that you are not realizing your finished look in the tree in a very early stage but you start your tree smaller and through addition of cutbacks right you build it out to that size gaining branches as you do so. Um, so that was kind of like, I felt a very underlooked aspect of a lot of deciduous work I see where we try too much to treat them like a juniper, you know, wire some branches, make it look nice, whatever. Um, but the reality is maintaining trees that way, maybe you get some nice lines in it, but your branches get coarser and coarser. You eventually have to cut back anyways to soften the outer silhouette. And in the long term, your tree actually doesn't improve. Um, so for me, it's where you get too hung up on that kind of immediate image that you prevent that kind of long-term potential from being realized. And, and for me, that's the kind of like lesser quality of deciduous bonsai. Um, the second aspect, and this is relating to penjing, and we kind of talked about, you know, the oak form, is creating a movement in primary branch lines. So we have some kind of branch, right, and a deciduous branch, and we cut it. Um, we always have a lateral bud, right, alternating or symmetric. That lateral bud guarantees that when you cut it um, from that new emergent bud, you have some change in direction in your branch line. So for as many cutting intervals as you have as growing the new branch, your branch can have a small change in direction. Um, so if you look at a lot of like nice penjing trees and I have some examples in the blog, I mean, if you compare your primary branch line, right, compared to maybe some of the Japanese bonsai or deciduous trees, there's just much more uh, aggressive in that you see all this crazy contortion and movement in the branch line. It carries a lot of kind of character and visual interest. And some of them look very much uh, like oaks. And that's more to show the concept of that when you build out your branch structure, you can create movement and interest through the cutbacks, right? Versus if you wire a branch, even your very best compact bend, right, is going to be some kind of arc. You can't physically wire sharp angular bends in a deciduous branch. Um, it seems like counterintuitive, right? Like, why would you want sharp bends? Um, but you're doing this as you're developing the tree. So, you know, the branches will thicken, the corners will soften out. And in the end, through this cutback process, right, your branches just have 
way more movement um, than if you wired them out versus cutting it and building out. So there's kind of a twofold advantage, right? Just one, actually getting more branches, which lends to that sense of scaling on the tree, making it have more uh, presence as a as a kind of large, small tree per se. And then this concept of building movement in your primary branches. And I feel there's a whole like range in between there where and that's like through the professional's discretion or their philosophy or whatever, how aggressive that movement should be, or should it be more pure on just the ramification side, right? If we look at, uh, I think I showed a picture of a Brooms Alcova, right? Very old, uh, soft, refined tree, um, but not a lot of movement in the branches, right? Just a lot of density. Um, so I think the aesthetic approach is a little bit different, but it's showing that there is this way we can manipulate the look of the tree right in that development and growing process which is realized over time um, but i think in the end you you have just such better higher quality trees um, than just trying to do this whole kind of style a, a wire deciduous tree i think you just end up with very poor quality um you know just diluted bonsai um that was kind of like my um, uh, approach and, and kind of my thought process, especially after seeing um, uh, Peter, right, the last few years, how he's building his trident maples. And I was like, wow, like even for, you know, a young tree in a sense, and it's still, of course, not that young, a lot of work into it. I mean, it's very, very fine branching, uh, extreme amount of density when we compare to many deciduous trees we see in the U.S., and then I kind of contrasted that with, um, we have a, a penjing curator at the Huntington Gardens here in Southern California. Uh, people here just call him uh, Mr. Che, um, but he is very skilled, um, does great work. And um, well, he, he, he originally learned um, in China and and he has like this great, uh, it's like this Lignan uh, penjing style. Um, and, and the aesthetic is different um, where the primary lines, right, have different movement. Um, but they're similarly very dense. And it's just that control of are you cutting for ramification or cutting for movement? And the professional can, can right, you can decide or the hobbyist grow or whatever what they want to realize for the look of the tree. Um, for me, that's the, the big potential in deciduous bonsai um, where you can have a full range of styles and aesthetics and qualities in the branching. Um, that I think is not really realized yet in the U.S. <clears throat> Solid, man. <laughs> yeah, sorry, that was like really long. Uh, that was a bunch of talk about. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was fantastic, man. So many great points there that you hit. And uh, I really like your approach to building ramification on deciduous. And it, it's very similar to Peter's. I'm so impressed with his trident maples that oh, he's... Yeah. Yeah, been able to uh, what he's been able to accomplish in in a relatively short amount of time. Yeah, yeah. Um, those points he he hits a lot of those points as well, mm -hmm. and I've learned from him. You know, um, w one of the main things that I kind of made me uh, realize the way to achieve a super ramified deciduous tree is to start the divisions close to the trunk, right? Yeah. Because you yeah. only have a certain amount until a certain amount of distance until you hit the silhouette. Yeah. And so, you know, the closer that you have them to the trunk, the more divisions you can get. 
And your chart was really cool to think about. It was almost like compounding interest. Yeah. How like, yeah. <laughs> you know, cutting, getting more and more divisions, you know, two turns into four, four turns into eight and so on right. and f- so forth. And uh, I think you laid all that out fantastically. So yeah. definitely go check that article out if you haven't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sweet, man. Well, hey, we just officially hit, uh, well, all, uh, two, we're t- two minutes less than two hours. <laughs> yeah. um, for me, it flew by. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, really enjoyed talking to you. Um, I think I need to uh, help my wife get uh, to bed right now. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I really yeah, enjoyed good. talking I mean, to great, you. Great to talk. Um, l- look forward to seeing how your, your podcast uh, develops. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited to uh, to get them going. I hope that they turn out really well. I I, I think that they will eventually. Uh, I don't think I'm the greatest host right now, um, but I will always keep trying to improve. And uh, I'm I'm putting myself out there, and hoping that I will get better little by little over time and become a better host. Um, but I'm excited for this project, and uh, you are absolutely awesome. Um, where can people follow you? Um, I'm right on, now. Uh, Instagram. It's um, bonsai T S. <laughs> it's like a play on my last name, um, but bonsai underscore. Um, you can find me on my website, uh, justbonsai.com. Um, I have a page on Facebook under the same name, but if you just type my name, um, you'll find me there because I post work there pretty often. Um, but yeah, just contact me on any of those platforms or shoot me an email and I'll, I'll be happy to reply. Awesome, man. Well, Hey, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. Um, if you could stick on just for one sec, I'm going to, I'm going to stop this now. Uh, but really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it, Julian. You're the man, dude. Thanks so much. Yeah.